First Person is produced in cooperation with the Far East Broadcasting Company, who rejoice in the stories of changed lives through the power of Jesus Christ. Learn more at febc.org. You're not going to just bang on that door with your theology and your doctrines, as important as they are. I believe you have to find a way into the back door of those people's hearts, because that front door is locked and bolted. Our guest now in first person is Clint Green, a Native American with an interesting story to tell of coming to faith in Christ. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen now as we hear Clint's testimony. If you're new to first person, we meet people from all walks of life who have dedicated their life to serving Jesus Christ. These weekly interviews can be heard online at firstpersoninterview.com. So if you miss a program or have to leave us early, just go to firstpersoninterview.com and click the red listen button for a list of past programs. Or use our free smartphone app to listen and even download programs to take with you into your day. Look for the app First Person Interview in your app store. As always, a special word of thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company for support in providing these programs. Learn more at febc.org. As I mentioned, Clint Green is a Native American who is the leader of the organization Native American Indigenous Ministry. His own journey to faith in God is one worth listening to, and Clint joined me on the phone to talk about it. I'm a uh, full-blooded Native American. I'm a what's called the Iroquois people. That's the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy of New York State and Ontario, Canada. Uh, my parents were born and raised on a reserve in uh, Canada called Grand River of the Six Nations, and that's where I was born. And my father moved to Niagara Falls, New York, when I was a young boy, about four years old, to to work. And uh, he was a blue-collar worker his entire life. He worked at a factory there in Niagara Falls. My mother was a, a stay-at-home mom, and uh, my older sister died, so I was the only child. And uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, I had uh, uh, my world was outside of the family, basically. But we did go back up there to Grand River, uh, to the family up there. It's about 50 miles from Niagara Falls, and uh, we would go occasionally and spend summers up there. And so, so I had a, kept that connection with my with my uh, ancestry. And I'm a registered member up there of the, of the nation. And um, But I, I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York. Well, in the neighborhood I grew up in, organized sports didn't begin uh, for us until we went to uh, uh, junior high school. In my elementary school, I had a good friend who was a tennis player. So I got involved with that, uh, with him. So when I went to uh, junior high, I decided to pursue football and uh, tennis. And so I tried out for both of those teams and made them and... Uh, on that uh, football team was an eighth grader. Uh, he was a Tuscarora Indian. His name was Earl. And uh, we connected uh, immediately. And he basically became the big brother I never had. Hmm. I mean, I admired him tremendously. I wanted to, I wanted to emulate him. And uh, he was he was our star uh, football player. In fact, he was an all-star in every sport he played. He was one of those gifted athletes. Mm-hmm. That whatever sport he played, he was an all-star. And, uh, you know, he had a pretty... Uh, uh, I guess you'd call unconventional lifestyle. He uh, he was a party guy, you know, he, he liked to have a good time. But what he really enjoyed doing was fighting. Oh. He loved fighting. But but anyway, uh, so uh, I just emulated him, and, you know, he was a tough guy. And long story short, uh, one night he uh, he beat up a guy. He'd just pick a fight with somebody, go down to a bar and pick a fight with somebody. And mm. the next week uh, uh, he came back uh, with three of his friends, and they went looking for him. 
And they found him, and Earl knew he was overmatched here, so he took off in his car, and they chased him. And uh, Earl ran off the road, hit a tree, and his uh, sister called me uh, that night and said, uh, Earl's been in an accident. He's in intensive care at Mount St. Mary's Hospital. So I'm in 11th grade. He's a senior. And uh, I'd get my clothes on and go down to the hospital and see the family, and they let me in to see him. And, you know, there's my there's my idol. There's my... You know, there's the man I'm, I'm trying to model my life after. He's he's laying around that in that bed on life support, uh, unconscious, and uh, man, I, I just I'd never seen anything like that before, and I, I didn't know how to handle it. So I went home and I didn't sleep very much that night. And his sister called me in the morning and said uh, Earl passed away this morning. Oh. He had signed a letter of intent to go to Syracuse University on a full football scholarship. Um, that was his plan after graduation. That was gone. So I collected myself and moved on, got through high school, and decided to go on to college. I went to go to college, and uh, a, a good friend of mine, who, who was a tennis player also, uh, he had accepted an offer to come to the University of Memphis, which was Memphis State University back then. And I said, well, you know, I want to go to college, and it sounds like a pretty good one. Uh, well, I'll just tag along with you, and, uh, you know, I'll try it as a walk-on. And uh, long story short, he made the team, and, got, and I didn't. But <laughs> but I, I like Memphis. You know, I like the climate. Uh, I like the city. And much different than it is today. Um, I like the city. And, and the coach, really, uh, you know, I got along well. He really tried to help me. Uh, he uh, got me some uh, opportunities to do some private lessons uh, at some country clubs and working with some clinics. So he really helped me. And uh, mm. that got me through um, uh the first years of college there, the initial uh, time. and You were not a Christian at that time? Oh, no, no. And I'll tell you why. Um, growing up, you know, I go back to the reserve there, and many of my uh, relatives were into very traditional Native ways and Native beliefs that people may not understand, but the only common ground between Christianity and traditional Native uh, belief is a belief in the supernatural. Uh, there's no other common ground. There's no heaven or hell. We all have our own creation stories. We have our own life-after-death beliefs, and none of it is biblical. None of it is biblical. Uh, but there is a belief in the supernatural. There's no question about that. So uh, I looked at their lives, you know, my relatives that were into traditional beliefs, and, and my friend, the people I knew in Niagara Falls that went to church, uh, went to synagogue, went to... Uh, whatever they went to, Mass, or whatever they did, uh, I looked at them and said, you know, these people do all this religious stuff, but the rest of the time, they're, they're no different than me. They're no better, no worse. What good is it? <laughs> what value is it? I don't need that. You know, and um, my mother, uh, my dad was, was, I guess, what you call a, a, a good man. He uh, provided for his family. Uh, he didn't drink, smoke, gamble, came home, worked every day, came home. My mother had been raised in a Christian home. Her father, uh, my grandfather, was an Anglican minister up there in, on Grand River. She grew up in a Christian home, but she was diagnosed with uh, rheumatic fever very, uh, as a teenager. And uh, she struggled with that her, her entire life. So because of that, uh, we never went to church. Uh, I didn't have any church exposure at all. Never had a Bible. I mean, she she was a praying woman, but she never forced Christianity on me. She never any long conversation with me, and, and my dad was a classic good man, and so we were a fine family. We were just like everybody else, and uh, that's my thought. So with that in mind, you know, I come to Memphis, and uh, 
it's amazing how the lifestyle you're living in one place you can find in another place very quickly. <laughs> so I quickly got into that lifestyle of the drinking and the gambling and the fighting and the, and the partying and all that that had, I had been doing. I got that joined a fraternity in, in Memphis and uh, got right back where I left off in Niagara Falls. I went, well, I went home one summer, and uh, so there was a young man I was working with there, and he was from Ohio State. And uh, he was different than the other guys working there. Uh, I didn't pay much attention to it. But uh, one day he sat down with me and he said, can I eat lunch with you today? We're getting ready to go back. We're getting the end of the summer. And uh, I said, sure. So he sat down. He said, Clint, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. He said, do you think man is basically good or basically bad? Well, I thought about it. Nobody ever asked me that before. I thought about everybody I knew, my family, my friends, uh, teachers, people in the neighborhood, and myself. And I said, well, you know, uh, I know none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes from time to time. Uh, but basically, overall, uh, we're good people. And he showed me through the scripture how that's not God's view of us, of mankind. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. Well, that rocked my world. <laughs> because looking back, on, I was a classic humanist. Matthew chapter 7 talks about that uh, uh, broad road and a narrow gate, mm -hmm. and I was on that broad road. I was on that broad road that led to destruction. But I didn't realize it. No one had ever challenged me uh, with my thinking until, until then. So he didn't press me for a decision. He shared a, a, um, uh, four spiritual laws with me, and he gave that to me. He gave me a copy of uh, Good News from Modern Man. I uh, never had a buy. I didn't know what that was. He gave that to me, and he went back to Ohio State, and I came back to, to Memphis and uh, never heard from him after that. Couldn't tell you what his name was. Hmm. But he planted the seed. He planted the seed that challenged my thinking because I had a plan for my life. As far as I could tell, it was working pretty well. You know, there were bumps in the road, but overall mm -hmm. my plan was, was on track for what I wanted to accomplish in my life. And uh, God brought a young lady into my life. We would go to church uh, from time to time, and but I thought about uh, what that young man had told me, and the Holy Spirit began to work in my life. He he showed that young man the question they asked me that would challenge where I was, the sin in my life. He knew exactly what I needed to hear, and only God can do that. Only God can do that. So I took that. And I looked at that sports spiritual laws track one Friday night in the fraternity house I was living in. And I read through it. And I saw what God's plan was. It's the Holy Spirit spoke to me that night. Now, I don't know how you feel about things, but I believe God speaks to us. Yep. Understood. God definitely does talk to us. Yep. And that night, all alone in that, in that fraternity house, everybody else had gone out to different things. I was by myself. I went back in my bedroom. And I got that track out, and the Holy Spirit said to me, Clint, I invested a lot in Earl, and he squandered it. I've invested a lot in you, and you're going to squander it too. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that night, for the first time in my life, I was afraid. Not of anything or anybody. I was afraid of myself, because I knew those words that the Holy Spirit spoke to me were true. It was just a matter of time before this lifestyle was going to end in that destruction, just as it did for Earl. 
And I said, well, whatever I got to do, God, I'll do it. So I got that track out, and I read through it, and there's a prayer in there. And so this is a suggested prayer. If you want to receive Christ, pray this prayer. Well, I said, you know, it's good enough for me. I've never prayed a prayer in my life or anything. I'm 22 years old. I never had a need to pray. If it's a suggested prayer, I'll pray it. Well, I prayed that prayer, and I gave my life to Christ that Friday night. And two things didn't happen that night. I didn't then go to heaven, and he didn't make me perfect. <laughs> I've been a work in process ever since. But what did happen was that that turmoil and that emptiness that was in me, that I was trying to fill with all this stuff of the world, all these things I was participating in, including the good stuff, education, sports, all the good stuff, and and the best. All that stuff I was using to fill that void and to fill it and calm that turmoil was gone. The Holy Spirit came into my life that night and filled that void. That was 50, 51 years ago. I described my life with Christ growing in, in, in Him, not an interstate highway, but more like a, a, a dirt road. <laughs> it's had some, I've gone to the ditch a few times, but He's always been there to pull me out. <laughs> yeah, he's always been there to pull me out and put me back on that road again. We'll continue hearing the story of Native American Clint Green coming up on this edition of First Person. Hi, I'm Ed Cannon, and as you know, situations around the world are changing quickly. Stay current with FEBC's ministry and get a deeper understanding of people who need to find hope. Hear how you can feel the pulse of God's Spirit moving through the hearts of believers dedicated to reaching the lost. Be sure you join me for the podcast until all have heard. Discover how the gospel is making a difference around the world. Search for Until All Have Heard on your favorite podcast platform or hear it online at febc.org. My guest is Clint Green. Clint is with Native American Indigenous Ministry. And uh, by the way, my thanks to Byron Tyler, host of Mid-South Viewpoint on Bot Radio, for introducing me to Clint. And I knew as soon as I heard their conversation, it was something that we needed to hear on first person as well. So, Clint, I'm very happy that we could make this connection together. Well, thank you for having me. I, I really do appreciate it. Now, when you became a believer with the Native American heritage that you have, uh, I would imagine it wasn't that well-received back home, was it? No. Uh, in fact, it's... To this day, it's not received, and that's a problem that uh, Native people have. And when I went back to the reserve up there to, to talk to my relatives about what had happened to me and how I how I changed, you know, God changed me. Yeah, they knew me. They helped raise me. They knew the kind of kid I was. And the, the traditional ones, uh, when I told them that story, they said, well, Clint, you've, you've turned your back on us. Hmm. Uh, we're done with you. You've gone the white man's way. See, I was going to be the next generation to carry on the traditional ways. I was the one that was going to perpetuate uh, our traditional beliefs. But that didn't deter you? Oh, well, it hurt, but no, it didn't deter me. It didn't, it didn't deter me. It hurt. And what I had been going to, I, the young lady I mentioned to you, we started dating, started going to church, and we married in 1971. So I, I joined the church, and, and immediately I was surrounded by godly people who really loved me and cared about me. 
even more so than some of my family members. That's so very important, isn't it? Yeah. So even though I lost a part of my family, God gave me a bigger family. Hmm. And he keeps giving me a bigger family. And we're talking about the bigger family right now. Yeah. When did God give you this burden, Clint, to reach into your heritage, into the Native American culture, and proclaim Christ? When, when did that burden come upon you? Well, immediately I wanted to, to tell people what had happened, you know, to me. But, hey, I'm, I'm a babe in Christ, literally. I mean, I've never had a Bible. I've never read the Bible. I've never been really just now started going to church. Uh, didn't know anything about prayer. Didn't know anything about evangelism. Didn't know anything about Bible study. You know, I, I'm I'm learning. I mean, and, and so but God put a burden in my heart, you know, and and uh, one of the first men I witnessed to, young guy I witnessed to, I, I stopped him on the street and I said, uh, uh, are you saved? And he looked at me and said, from what? <laughs> he said, from what? <laughs> so I said, what? what do I do with that? You know? <laughs> so, so, so I fumbled through that. And uh, about the only, the only Bible verse I really knew at that time was John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to that you might have life abundantly. So I gave that to him. <laughs> he walked away. And uh, so, you know, I, I, that's where I'm starting. Well, then I'm sure there's a lot of people, you know, may listen to this to say, I, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I didn't know a thing. And, and so, so I began to, to evangelize. I started, one thing I did, I wanted a platform to reach Native people. And so I was, uh, I was uh, an artist of sorts, and uh, when my kids were so, so I went on the power circuit. Traveling the power circuit is a northern style traditional dancer, and my kids were dancers. We set up our booth, we'd sell our artwork. Mm. But I had crosses on my regalia, and I had, I had a Bible track on, on my table, and Bibles there to give to people. And my greatest opposition to that, unfortunately, was the church. Not oh. my church, but other churches. Because the reason that I can understand why people said that's the white man's religion, because many times when people were converted, uh, they were told to abandon that life completely, mm-hmm. walk away from that life completely. They're they're told to to extract. They extract them from that life. The my what was my traditional life and all that native people, but they don't teach us how to be reinserted into that life to be effective for the Lord. And so I wanted a place to go where people, where Native people would be that would never darken the door of a church. They were like me. They would never go to a church, had no reason to. In fact, they were opposed to it. So I went to where they were. You know, a buzzword right now uh, is the word uh, contextualization. Yes. Contextualization is a big word right now. Well, I don't believe it has to do with music or dress or uh, necessarily ceremonies and rituals. I believe contextualization is meeting people where they are. That young man in that factory that summer met me where I was. God led him to meet me where I was. I'm not going to change the power circuit, but I can go to where those people are that would that will never hear the gospel any other way. Mm-hmm. So I'm contextualizing, you know, like Paul said, I'll, I'll be all things to all people. Whatever I need to do to reach these people with the gospel, I'll do it. Yeah. Take a couple of minutes and, and explain to us the difficulty in reaching Native Americans. It's such a such a hard culture to penetrate with the gospel, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. And the reason, I, I believe, is because all of society, any society that you look at, any people group, everything about that society is downstream from their theology. Their theology dictates everything. Their government, their laws, their educational uh, proceed, you know, The opposition from my relatives that were traditional people, my, the- my new theology was now in conflict with their theology. Yes. And it was unacceptable. I was an enemy now. One of the goals of my ministry, our, our mission statement is working to see Native people reaching Native people. And so we try to help the local churches, we try to help local ministries with whatever tools we have, whatever resources we have. I mean, we have a we work with a ministry that does Bible teaching and disciple training. We do we do that. We work with a ministry that does uh, uh, grief uh, uh, grief uh, management for people that have lost a child. I lost a grandson when he was fourteen years old through a tragic accident, and my my daughter and son in law they they started working with a ministry called While We're Waiting, and now they've started their own ministry called Promise for Hope, and that deals with. Uh, parents who have lost a child. Those are the type of resources that uh, that are available to me whenever I find a minister at church, you know, that wants help in certain areas. It could be, can be construction projects, can be Bible teaching, can be women's ministry, men's ministry, couples ministry, whatever helps that congregation be stronger, what helps that pastor be stronger in reaching these people. You know, the, the 3% that, have, that are trying to impact the 97% who don't believe. How can we help them? 3% of the Native American population believe in Christ, you're saying? That's that's current estimates. Now, you can go to places where it may be up to 7 8%. I've been to places where it's less than 1%. Hmm. So how do you reach that? You know, that's, that's a huge mission field. It's a huge, only 7,000 people or so, or, or 7 million people or so scattered across the country. It's a huge mission field. But you're, you're not going to... Just bang on that door with your theology and your doctrines, as important as they are. I believe you have to find a way into the back door of those people's hearts, because that front door is locked and bolted. You've got to find a way into their hearts. And these ministries that help them, that show God's love in a practical way to them, through their local church, through their local missionaries, when they see that. I was at a prison last night. And we had 65 inmates there. 20 gave their life to Christ. After it was over, one of the inmates came up to me, and he said, thank you for being here. He said, I have have family members that never come to see me, but you're here all the time. That's contextualization. That's meeting that man where he is. You've been listening to Clint Green of Native American Indigenous Ministries tell his own story and the desire he has to reach people in the Native culture with a powerful gospel message of hope and salvation. Clint is developing a new website, and as soon as it's available, we'll put a link to it at firstpersoninterview.com. These weekly first-person programs are made possible by the Far East Broadcasting Company. When it comes to reaching indigenous people groups scattered in many parts of the world, FEBC is having success in using radio and social media to deliver the gospel. Add the podcast until all have heard to your playlist and learn more about this facet of FEBC's ministry among minority language groups. Listen at febc.org. Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next time for First Person.